You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We've come to question 21 um, in our study, and in light of that, let's open with prayer. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessings you've already bestowed upon us this day. We are grateful for the gift of life, for the means to sustain it, for the joys that we experience But especially on the Lord's Day, we thank you for the gift of saving faith in the Lord Jesus, our great Redeemer. And we ask that as we consider him this day, that our love for him and our appreciation for him might increase. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is this okay? Is it too loud or too soft? Okay. So we've come to question 21, and it asks the question, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The answer given, the only Redeemer of God's elect, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That's an incredible question. Uh, In that question, those phrases have been hammered out in the course of church history, some of the early councils, as we'll see later. Very important, the person of Jesus Christ. It answers, and the answer highlights the very heart of God's plan of redemption, the Redeemer. You remember last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at question 20, which talks about the covenant of grace. God does not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery. He entered into a covenant of grace to deliver his elect from sin and misery. Gracious thing from all eternity, he had entered into that agreement with the Son. And the only mediator of that covenant is Jesus Christ, who, according to Scripture, is the Redeemer of God's elect. Job said in that famous passage, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. The incredible thing about that is that he said that in the depths of his suffering. The devil had accused him of being mercenary. God had said, Go ahead, give it a try. And he gave it his worst And Job's faith, while he was confused, while he did complain, while he was impatient, his faith never wavered. He knew that his Redeemer lived. Isaiah 59, and a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So this idea that he is the Redeemer of his elect, it's one of the best titles, in my opinion, of Christ. It's a very intimate, as we'll see, title. A redeemer, as you know, was a close relative who had the right of redemption to deliver from some form of evil. Ruth, uh, the whole uh, book of Ruth is an illustration of this. 
And that English word redeemer is derived from a Latin root that meant to buy back, to pay a ransom. So the redeemer would pay a price on behalf of an impoverished relative to redeem that relative's person or property. If you had fallen under difficult circumstances, you had to sell yourself as an indentured servant or a slave, the Redeemer could buy you back, buy your freedom or your property. The person would be delivered from slavery or his property and estate would be repurchased. We see that again in the example of Ruth. Uh, the estate had fallen into disrepair um, and Boaz came along and not only married Ruth and brought Ruth and Naomi out of potential slavery, but repurchased the estate, established it. Interestingly enough, he did this at great cost because the child that would have been born would not have been considered his. It would have been raised up under the name of the deceased husband, which is one of the reasons why the first redeemer gave up his right of redemption. He wouldn't get anything out of it. He'd father a son. The son would grow up under the name of the first husband and take the estate to himself. So the redeemer wouldn't get anything, technically. That's why the first redeemer said, I can't do it. First, he said, I could do it. Uh, But then he said, I couldn't. Because he'd have to marry Ruth, father a child, child would grow up, take the estate. He'd have nothing. Any questions on this so far? Okay. So the concept of Redeemer is well illustrated within the Mosaic Law. We find in Exodus 21 this passage. When an ox gores a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. So there you see this idea of his life being purchased, a ransom being paid, the Redeemer performing his responsibility. This was a case not of willful murder, So the ox owner could redeem his forfeited life. He should have kept his ox under control, but he didn't. But it's not willful, premeditated murder. So that's one of the reasons why he could be redeemed. If it's premeditated murder, there's no redemption. And the thread that runs through all the Old Testament redemptions is this idea of the payment of a price for deliverance. You've got to pay a price. Somebody's got to pay. My favorite movie, National Treasure, near the end, you know, Nicolas Cage, he says, or no, the, 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 the detective says, somebody's got to go to jail. And Nicolas Cage says, I know exactly who can go to jail. So it was great. By nature, we who commit sin are slaves to sin and are sold under sin. We're under enslavement. We're enslaved. And at the same time, we're told that by nature, we're children of wrath. That idea of children of wrath is not that we are wrathful. Children of wrath means that we are the objects of divine wrath. And we're condemned to death. That's our condition by nature. So without redemption, 
our slavery to sin would continue and the sentence would be carried out. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You will die physically, spiritually, eternally. So the price paid for our full redemption was the vicarious death of Jesus Christ at the cross. That was the ransom. Somebody had to die. And he voluntarily did so on our behalf. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, there's the price, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So the justice of God, all its demands are satisfied by this precious blood. He's God. That makes his blood precious. He's man, innocent. Only man should pay it and only God could pay it. So we find that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Any questions at this point? Okay? Good. You'll notice that the question talks about the eternal Son of God. So we discussed the pre-incarnate Son. The only Redeemer of God's elect was the eternal Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is equal in power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now we get into this idea of the person of the Son and the persons of the Trinity. It's very uh, mysterious. It's very important. <laughs> and it's no reason and no wonder that the, that the devil attacked this first and foremost in the early church. The eternal Son, in his pre-incarnate state, shared delight with his Father. And we find this in Proverbs 8. If you look at Proverbs 8, it's wisdom personified. It's wisdom talking. And of course, the wisdom of God is Christ. So we find in Proverbs 8, Christ, the pre-incarnate Son, speaking. And he says in part... Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, eternally, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. That's the pre-incarnate son talking. And so we find that the father and the son, they enjoyed and delighted in one another before any other creature ever existed. They had one another and the Holy Spirit. This perfect fellowship in the Trinity from all eternity. What that means, it's very difficult for us to comprehend. No beginning, no end. Time means nothing. Outside of time, not bound by space. They delighted in one another. And they both, father and son, delighted in the future salvation of the elect and the prospect of redemption. That's incredible. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. He knew what the price was going to be. He saw the cross long before it came upon him. And yet he delighted in the future salvation of the elect. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame and the pain and the curse of the cross. That's incredible. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, I underlined that phrase, 
Because the word the father's side can also be translated as bosom, breast, chest, even womb. So the King James has it, the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he hath declared him. Why am I emphasizing this? The expression denotes the relationship of the greatest intimacy and dearness. There's nothing closer. The closest relationship on earth between two people is nothing compared to the relationship between the Father and the Son from all eternity. He was in the bosom of the Father as John laid his head upon Christ's bosom as the favorite of the disciples. It's as if John says the pre-incarnate Christ was wrapped up in the very soul of his father, John Flavel. So this is what Jesus left to pay the awesome price of our redemption. Incredible thought. (laughs) They'd never, from all eternity, experienced any kind of separation, anything but the greatest and deepest delight. Any questions on the pre-incarnate son before we move on? Okay. The question does talk about him as the eternal son of God. Then it says the eternal son of God became man. And so was and amazingly continues to be and forever will be. God and man in two distinct natures in one person. The divine son took a human soul and body into personal union. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We confess that every time we look at the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the most important aspects of the the profession of Christianity. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, miraculously, immaculately, without sin in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Extraordinary generation. He didn't come the same way that we did. So he was not represented by Adam. He represents the elect. He is God-man, and he has all the attributes of both natures, divine and human. These two distinct natures were inseparably joined together in the one divine person. That word inseparably, this is one of the things that boggles my mind. He will be God-man for eternity. Once he assumed human nature, that will never change. For our sakes, he took upon him human flesh. Great indeed, we confess. Sorry, it's so small. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. There was no conversion. These are errors that cropped up in the history of the church, and so we have these things in our confessions and catechisms. There was no conversion so that one nature was not converted or altered to become the other. The divine didn't become human. The human didn't become divine. No conversion. There was no composition. So that the two natures did not coalesce to form some kind of third, unique nature. They're distinct. No conversion, no composition, no confusion. The two natures did not mix or mingle together in any way. They're distinct. Very important. No conversion, no composition, no confusion. The church hammered these doctrines out over centuries. Very important to get the person of Christ right. 
He will never cease being God-man, divine and human, and that means it will last forever. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able, because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He has this priesthood as God-man forever. That ensures our salvation. He prays for you and me, even now. He pleads, not that he's wringing his hands, he declares that his merit is applied to you. So that you're clothed in this immaculate righteousness, this robe of righteousness, and God sees you as he sees Christ. Stunning. As much as he loves Christ, that's how much he loves you. That intimacy that Jesus and the Father enjoyed, that's what we're going to enjoy. Father, I hope and pray that they'll be one as we are one. That they'll join us in this fellowship. 1 John 1. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. It's incredible. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. (laughs) He just gives it. Any questions on the incarnate Christ? Yes, Rob. Yeah, Jesus, well, God doesn't tempt anyone. He does test Abraham. Take your son, your only son, the son of promise, kill him. So he tested Abraham's faith, but he tempts no one to evil. When Jesus was driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, the devil tempted him. And he did as the second Adam in the wilderness what the first Adam failed to do in the Garden of Eden. So you see the two Adam scheme here? That the one representative who represented all of us failed. We all die. The next second Adam, the representative, he succeeded. We live. He's not tempted. Absolutely. Good point. Your instincts are well founded. Yeah, it's in human nature because God cannot be tempted. Yep. Jonathan? The theophany is the pre-incarnate appearances of God in sort of a human form or a visible form. Do we say that, I've heard some people say that that is, the, that is Christ. Do we say that that is his physical body since he didn't get God? No, I think it's a good point and a good question. Are these pre-incarnate appearances of Christ his body? No. In the fullness of time, he took upon flesh. But somehow, and I don't know how, it's a mystery to me, but he was able to present himself appearing as a human, just like the angels do at times. So I don't know how that happens. God is able to do that. But he is still the pre-incarnate Christ. He appeared in the bush. That was the Lord Jesus, the uh, angel of the Lord. Yeah. Ward? Yeah, Yeah, I haven't run across it too much, but Michael, some people would 
um, equate the two, I have a hard time doing that because he's Michael. <laughs> right. Anywhere else in the scriptures, he's either Jesus Christ, the Son, or the angel of the Lord. I don't, I don't follow that. Yeah. Subordination. Jesus Christ is the one God, just as the Father is the one God. There are not three gods, but one God who exists in three persons. Absolutely essential. You cannot be a Christian if you don't affirm that. The Lord Jesus is not like God. He is God, the only God. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We believe that. As God, he is not subordinate to the Father in any way. You need to know that because there is a teaching out even now in our day, which is called the eternal subordination of the Son. It's wrong. He is not subordinate to the Father. I think Wayne Grudem is one. Um, there are some others. I forget their names. But they, we're going to look at some of the passages here that they attribute what the scriptures are saying about his humanity to his deity. So, I mean, it, 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 it's wrong because the scriptures teach that God, or the Son and the Holy Spirit are God equal with the Father. Well, you can't be equal if you're subordinate, you know. I can do nothing on my own, says Jesus, as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, obviously, that is a subordinate statement. He is subordinate in some way. The question is, how? I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Subordinate. Now, you can see where some of these theologians get this. They look at a statement like that, and they say, oh, there you go. The eternal Son is saying that he's subordinate to the eternal Father. But in these passages, this incarnate Son is speaking in his humanity as the second Adam. It's very important for us to always determine context. Who's saying what, when, where, how, for what reason, some, some interpret them as proving the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father, but that's not taught in Scripture. It contradicts the truth of Christ's true and full deity. We looked at this earlier. These three are one God, the same in substance or essence, equal in power and glory. Ellen? Yes. Absolutely. That's exactly right. You're a better theologian than them. That's because you've been well trained in the catechism. No, but you're exactly right. It's, it's the, the humanity, the mission of the mediator who was sent as the God-man, as the second Adam. Since it was an agreement between the two, he's not subordinate as the eternal son. So if you, if you run into this teaching, be sure not to embrace it. 
It's not true. It undermines the idea of the three persons in the Trinity. Yes, John? Right. Absolutely. You're right. There's nothing that says that. It does say eternally begotten. And so as we'll find out that the three persons of the Trinity have their own personal properties. For lack of a better word, that's what we use. There's something that distinguishes these three persons. They're equal as God. They're one God. But what distinguishes them? Well, the Father begets the Son eternally. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son from all eternity. So God is lisping to us, teaching us something about the Trinity, and that's what we learn from Scripture. We can't go any farther than that. But they are distinguished in their persons in this way. Oh, or. Yeah. The same thing with marriage. It's that, you know, Paul says we are, you know, male and female are equal. Right. And yet we have different economic roles within the family. Absolutely. And uh, I know this gets at some of this internal uh, subordination, uh, which is trying to tear apart, you know, the tri- you know classic Trinitarian theology. So I think right. it's very important to understand this and go back to question and answer six. That's right. Exactly. Well said. And I think you're right. There is a difference between the economic function that each person of the Trinity takes upon himself, a particular function, and the eternal relationship between the persons. Very different. <clears throat> Absolutely. That's right. But even in our standards, it says this is the work, when it talks about the application of redemption, it says this is the work especially of the Holy Ghost. It's not only the Holy Ghost. It's a triune activity. So So the person of the Son, he has two entire distinct natures, both divine and human. He is not only truly, but he is fully God, and he is fully man, lacks nothing. His divine nature and his human nature are complete, not partial. He's not part man. It's not like he has a body and no soul. Some think he's composed of a divine spirit in this husk of a human body. That's not true. Two entire distinct natures in union with his person are both a human body and a human soul. He has a mind, human mind, human will, human affections. And these two entire natures are distinct, both divine, both human, and one, one divine, one human. That's not phrased right. These two distinct natures are mysteriously, I can't explain it, but really united in one divine person. His person is divine. As we said, no conversion, composition, confusion, but each remains distinct and retains its own identity. 
And while Jesus possesses two natures, he, will, he was and always will be only one person. That's important. There was an error in the early church attributed to Nestorius, but probably more to his followers, that said he had two persons. A divine person, a human person, divine nature, human nature. He is human, but he's not a human person. Since from all eternity, he has been a divine person. You're scratching your head thinking, what are you talking about? In the fullness of time, the divine person, you have to recognize he was a divine person, right? Eternal son of God, took to himself a human nature, not a human person. Human nature is what you and I have in common. We all have a mind, a will, affections. Human personality is what distinguishes us as unique. There's only one Jim, thankfully. <laughs> I'm just kidding you, my friend. There's only one. Why? He's human. He has a body. He has a mind, a will, and affections like you and me. We're the same. But he has his own unique personality. That's what distinguishes Jim from the rest of us, right? So Jesus has what we have, the human nature, but he has his own unique personality. It's divine. It's from eternity. So he takes this human nature into personal union with his person, divine person, forever. And thank God that he did. As to human nature, all humans are exactly alike, but as to human personality, each one is unique. And that's Jesus. He took his, the human nature, mind, will, affection, soul, body, into personal union with his divine person. And that's a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. Ward? Human will, divine will. Human will, divine will. Both in perfect agreement, in perfect harmony. But he has a human will, and he has a divine will. God has a will, right? He has a purpose. And yet as the God-man, as man, he had a will. He chose. He determined. He had a purpose. He came to do the will of him who sent him. The will of him who sent God's will. And he will do that will. So yes, he has two wills. The whole human nature. There's nothing lacking in his human nature. He's just like you and me. What distinguishes him is his divine person. He is God. And that's incredible. How does that happen? How does a being who's not bound by space or time become bound by space and time? Well, he combines the two natures. Uh, Rob? I know what you're trying to say. I'd be hard-pressed to apply that text, Jesus, only because he's talking about the disciples having a difficult time, you know. But, yeah, I know what you're trying to say. I'm not sure I would apply that one. Ward?
Christ have two of those? Two minds. Okay. Human mind, divine mind. But they're in such perfect harmony, such perfect agreement in every detail that it's as if one person, well, one person is thinking, right? When he says, me, the son of God, he's talking about his person, divine person. But both of those minds are reflecting upon that person. Rob, do you have another question? Back and forth. Well, this, this is a debate. You've touched on a debate. Um, I, per, my personal opinion is <clears throat> he did know. He grew into a fuller understanding of it, but at 12 years old, he's sitting there amidst all the leaders of Israel, questioning them, <laughs> interrogating them. And they're scratching their heads thinking, where did he get? He, didn't you know I was supposed to be in my father's house? That's what he told his parents, you know. Mark? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, as a human being, he recoiled at the thought not only of physical death, but the separation from his father. In other words, enduring the pains of hell on the cross, as any human would recoil. But obviously we saw, or we hear him say, not my will, but thy will be done. So as a human being, I'm recoiling at this, but I am in perfect submission to your will. And so there we see, and very good, thank you for bringing that up, that, that proof of perfect agreement between the divine and the human will. John? So when Jesus walked the earth, he would speak more of his, him in contrast to his father. I submit myself to my father's will, I do as I, I carry out what he says. And he didn't speak as much in the context of his divine nature, where he was really submitting to his own will or submitting to Well, yeah, you're right, exactly. And it's difficult for us because of the mystery of the incarnation. I mean, he's God and man, both. So oftentimes when he's talking about submitting to his father's will, he's talking as man, the second Adam, right? He has a mission as the second Adam to redeem the elect. But of course he is God, which is why he raised himself from the dead. Who can do that? He had authority to lay it down. He has authority to raise it up again. He's God. So we have all these scriptures. But again, it's a very difficult thing <clears throat> to maintain a correct understanding with all these different texts. And we have to understand Jesus is speaking most of the time as the second Adam, our representative, <clears throat> the greatest human that's ever lived, and the representative of the elect. Was there a hand over here? Yeah, Melissa. Right. Because he was fulfilling perfect righteousness, it 
That's right. And he was tempted. <clears throat> he never succumbed to it. But as a sympathetic high priest, he's tempted in all things like you and I, right? So he had to be tempted, just like Adam was tempted, just like you're tempted. He always succeeded. Internally, he never had one thought that was uh, against his father's will or disparaged the Trinity or profaned the divine name. Never, ever. So that statement is a beautiful illustration of this perfect agreement. Yes, we understand the human nature recoiling at this. Who wouldn't recoil at this? But he was in perfect submission. Never once did he ever think about violating his mission. And he rejoiced in it. Heresies, Arianism claimed that he was the most exalted creature. <clears throat> Arius distressed the Father's uniqueness and Christ's subordination. In his view, the Father was al alone was infinite, eternal, and almighty. Arius. He opposed the eternality of the Son, claiming that the Son had a beginning. So they had like a little jingle, you know, these jingles for the advertising things. Um... Here it is right here. There was a time when he was not. So I imagine if they put music to it or something, they would walk around. There was a time when he was not. That was their jingle. And that was their thrust. That he is the greatest of all creatures, but he was a creature. The son was made God by the father's permission and power. That's Arianism. It was refuted at Council of Nicaea in 325. Docetism claimed that God's son never assumed human flesh, but simply appeared to do so. It's from the Greek word, which means to think or to seem. Um, this gets back to Jonathan's point when Jesus appeared pre-incarnate, looked like a man, wasn't really a man. Docetism claimed that that continued. He seemed human, but the historical bodily existence of the son was an illusion. This is a Gnostic doctrine, if you've heard of Gnosticism. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, but th those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why is John so intent on refuting this? Well, because he's dealing with Gnosticism. He's dealing with Docetism. John in his epistles is intent on affirming the physical, fleshly nature of Christ. Nestorianism, we already mentioned, two persons, one of which was divine, the other human. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Getting back to Ward's point, when he speaks of himself, I am the eternal son of God in the flesh, but I am the eternal son of God. I am Yahweh. That's what he's saying. And they understood exactly what he was getting at. They wanted to stone him on the spot. Eutychianism claimed that his divine nature consumed the human nature and blended into one, this composition. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. How do you crucify the Lord of glory? God's in his heavens. How do you crucify God? You can't. So there we have, in this one phrase, crucified Human nature, Lord of glory, divine nature. He's both. There isn't this blended. Only man should pay, only God could pay the ransom for our souls. Any questions on this? Any comments? Okay. 
This is a hard doctrine. It's vitally important. <clears throat> it's essential for us to at least try to understand. We think God thoughts, God's thoughts after him. We don't fully understand it, but it is very important. And I know it's difficult. Uh, Sam? Yeah. Emptied himself. There's a view out there which claims that he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, his divine power, his divine nature. And that was a a huge heresy. And um, I'm I'm forgetting the Greek word right now and the the heresy. Anybody remember that? What is it? Kenosis. Thank you. Kenosis theory. And the idea, even our standards say he emptied himself of his glory. All the vestiges of divinity, we couldn't see it in him, except in the Mount of Transfiguration. But it's not his divine nature. And the Kenosis people, they go far astray. They, they can't be Christians. Yes, Carrie? The Bible says he humbled himself, and his humility would have been hard for him. And I only humble when I humble myself for a Yes. Throughout his life, consistently, never wavered in his humility. And the incarnation that we celebrate every Christmas, which is a good thing, uh, we rejoice, you know, and we should, but we always should remember that that was the first step of his deep humiliation. The eternal Son of God took upon him the form of a servant in the likeness of sinful human flesh. So anybody who looked at him said, there's a sinner. (laughs) He's homely, he's poor, his parents were not married, he's illegitimate. There's a sinner. And he had to endure the likeness of sinful human flesh. So he did humble himself and he never wavered. He humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law. He humbled himself in his death for obvious reasons. And he even humbled himself after his death by being under the power of death and in the grave till the third day. So it's an incredible thing. Any final questions? I won't go on to the last one. I mean, well, the last one, so what? (laughs) He kept the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. He gave his sufferings, his obedience, his intercession worth and efficacy. He's God. He could satisfy God's justice. He could procure his divine favor on our behalf. He purchased us. He poured out his spirit upon us. That's what he did as God. He conquers all of our enemies and he brings us to everlasting salvation. Thank God that he's God. As man, he was able to advance our nature to the highest favor with God the Father. He performed obedience to the law, which we ought to have performed. He fulfilled all righteousness. He suffered as a substitute. He intercedes for us. He is a sympathetic high priest. And therefore, you and I can receive the adoption of sons, we're his brethren, and we have comfort and boldness before God's throne. He was born of a woman to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons, and he gives us confidence before the throne of grace. That's what. So what? That's incredible. Any final comments or questions that you may have? Ward? 
located in the resurrected body of Jesus, glorified as it is, but he is, that is the locus of... Of his humanity. Not his deity. Okay. His deity is omnipresent. His deity is omniscient. Nothing changed in his deity. By taking to himself a human body and a human soul, that didn't diminish or decrease his deity in the least. God never changes. But in his humanity, in his exalted humanity, he is localized, which is one of the reasons why we believe that he is not here in the supper. He's in heaven, right? Can't have, the body's not ubiquitous. It's not everywhere, which is what Luther tried to say. Luther struggled. He says, okay, I understand. <laughs> he's a body, but I'm claiming that he's with, in, and under the elements so he developed a doctrine, or somebody did, the ubiquity of the body. doesn't make any sense, but that's how he gets around the localization of the human body. That the human body of Jesus, exalted, can be ubiquitous. It can be everywhere at the same time. That's weird. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. And these things are mysterious. And yet we know they're true because you've revealed them to us. Please help us to understand what we can and to love and appreciate and to adore the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.